This is Scott Becker from Becker's Healthcare. I'm thrilled today to be joined by four of the best executives in the country, true leaders in healthcare. We've got with us today Lloyd Dean, Pam Sutton Wallace, Micheline Davis, and Gene Woods. We're co hosting today with Tony Waller. Tony Waller is the remarkable founder of the Leverage Network. The Leverage Network is an organization whose sole mission is to help African American leaders become leaders in healthcare, board seats, leaders in health systems, and so forth. The topic today is, of course, always a current one and even more current in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, killing. Um, we're discussing race in America and race in healthcare. Before I turn it over to Tony, who will lead moderation with me today, I'm thrilled to have Tony with us today, the Leverage Network, great organization. I'll ask each of our panelists to briefly introduce themselves, then we'll walk through this afternoon five to six questions about race in America and race in healthcare. Lloyd, can I ask you to take a moment to introduce yourself? Uh, thank you, Scott. I'm Lloyd Dean, the CEO of Common Spirit Health. I uh, just want to thank uh, again Scott and uh, Tony for hosting uh, what I think is one of the most critical uh, discussions uh, that we in this country and we as African Americans and we certainly as uh, members of the healthcare community are about to have. And it's an honor to be a part of this dialogue with the colleagues that you are about to meet. Thank you. Thank you. And for those that aren't aware, Common Spirit Health is the largest not-for-profit health system in the country, side-by-side -side with Kaiser Permanente, uh, with about a $30, $35 billion organization. Lloyd, thank you for joining us. Pam, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It is indeed a true pleasure and honor to be here, as Lloyd said, with our colleagues. We all know one another well, and it's just a joy to share in this honest conversation about race and health care. Um, I'm Pam Sutton Wallace. I work currently as the senior vice president at New York Presbyterian. Um, I'm responsible for the Brooklyn and Queens markets, as well as the medical group practices at New York Presbyterian. I joined that team about seven months ago. Um, so what a time to be joining the team working so hard in New York City. Uh, but I consider it a real privilege. Thank you. Thank you. And, and again, New York Presbyterian, a, a top five to 10 healthcare system in the entire world, as ranked by U.S. News and World, world Report, and, and Pam Sutton, world, Sutton, Dave, Sutton Wallace, a world-class executive. Thank you, Pam. Gene? Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, uh, pleasure to be here and to be here with, with friends. Um, I haven't seen them in a while, so it's great to see them here together uh, in this forum to talk about, as Lloyd said, a really, really important and timely subject. Um, my name is Gene Woods. I'm CEO of Atrium Health. We're a 40 hospital system, multi-state system, uh, headquarters in Charlotte. And I also did a stint um, uh, as the uh, former chair of the American Hospital Association. So to all my colleagues out there, I say welcome to the conversation. And, and Gene, for people that aren't aware, started with a $5 billion system. Not to put it in numbers, but it's important to be able to fulfill your mission. You have to be sizable. Now, a couple years later, it's about a $14 billion organization, an amazing transformation of the atrium system, what was the Carolina's health system, into what it is today. So, Gene, our hats are off to you. What an amazing job you have done. Micheline, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? Thank you so much, Scott. Um, I am Micheline Davis. I am with RWJ Barnabas Health, which is the largest academic medical center system in the state of New Jersey. Here, I drive our policy-led, equity-focused social determinants of health work through something called social impact and community investment. Um, it is truly an honor uh, to be uh, a part of this discussion, this, this long time coming discussion with these particular greats within our industry. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Ms. Shalane. I've had the chance to visit with you three times or so in the last couple of months, and always a magnificent pleasure. And you also with the magnificent Academic Medical Center and Elite Elite System. Thank you so much. And, and all of our executives, the thing that I set these four executives apart is magnificent brilliance together with great compassion 
for everyone, including the African-American community, of course, but magnificent mix of brilliance and compassion. Tony, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. And first and foremost, I want to say thank you to my colleagues uh, who have joined us today. I mean, we couldn't have a better panel uh, of, of, of experts and, and executives in the healthcare industry than the ones we have here today. And Scott, I want to especially thank you for partnering with uh, me and the Leverage Network in having this very bold and courageous conversation. It is a conversation um, that's been a long time coming. And, and unfortunately, it took what has happened in the past 90 days for us to get here to have this conversation. Uh, one of the things that we've talked about and I've also shared is that I contend that in order for us to get to the other side of this, um, to, to a, a space where we're beginning to heal and we're really beginning to find an approach, a way uh, to, to, to heal the rights of, of what we've been going through, we have to have very bold, candid, and transparent conversations. And I know a lot of these conversations have been happening all over the country over the past several weeks in the industry. Um, but this one I want to make unique in that we have black healthcare executives who are not the top executives in the industry, but they're black. And we live this experience every day. And so we want to speak from that, from that heart and that experience. So let's jump right in um, to the questions. And actually, the current landscape really sets the stage for such a conversation as it is today. I mean, if you think about it, in these past 90 days, and it's only been 90 days, we've experienced the gravity of over 400 years of oppression, repression, suppression, and aggression against Black lives. And as we all know, it began with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, where it unmasked the severe disparities and inequities that we've known um, and that has been experienced in communities of color, particularly black communities. And in that experience, we died at three to four times the rate of our white counterparts. And then that experience was escalated with the public death of George Floyd, which brought to light the death of the racism that still exists in this country. So together, these two pandemics have shown us that we really haven't made that much progress since the civil rights movement 50 years ago. So there is this tremendous gap that we're still experiencing between the basic human rights of minorities and that of the majority population. So with that, I'd like to start the conversation but hearing from each of you, your perspective on where this current gap is that exists between the basic human rights for black Americans in comparison to the majority. And Lloyd, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, thank you, uh, Tony. And let me just preface my comments by saying that I come to this conversation with mixed emotions. Uh, I am happy uh, that we are gathered and that all of the folks who are, are listening have, uh, we have touched a consciousness in this country, in this world, uh, that I am hopeful will allow us to once and for all have the courageous conversation, but more than just talk, uh, to take definitive actions to address systemic racism in this country. And when I say uh, mixed emotions, uh, I am, you know, disgusted that we sit here in 2020 replaying over and over again an element of history in what I think we all believe and say is one of the greatest, most advanced countries on the planet. And the fact that it took a death to touch the consciousness of not just the nation, but the world has to call all of us to pause and question and ask the question, why, why, why? 
But I also come to this conversation with hope that through this transparent dialogue, that each and every one of us will look within ourselves, will look within these gifts that we've been given, the positions, the opportunity, the voice that we have to unite and say once and for all, never, ever again. Will we sit idly by? Will we be silent? Will we not rally around the importance of life? And yes, that black lives matter, but drive toward all lives mattering. We know that throughout all of the work and the ministries of healthcare, that health inequities have been a part of our history. But what sits behind that fact is, is racism playing a significant role in going back decades, in many years, inequalities driving and moving forward where we sit here today. We can do better, we must uh, do better, but we will never move from this position if we don't acknowledge the depth of systematic racism in this country. And if we don't come together to move forward via discussions, through engagement, policies, practices, and yes, speaking and speaking loud as a united people in the streets and wherever that enough is enough. And we can and must do this. Great, thank you Lloyd for that. Pam? Yeah, I feel very much like Lloyd, right? That how unfortunate does it take a eight minute, 46 second video watching a man be suffocated to death to have us move. But I suspect our communities of color have been telling us this a long time, right? This isn't new for most of us. This is based in longstanding history of systemic and structural racism that has reared its head in a variety of formats, whether it was 1619 at the introduction of slavery in the Americas, whether it was during Jim Crow, um, as Michelle Alexander calls it, the new Jim Crow period of mass incarceration and police brutality, or things like healthcare disparities and inequities. These issues have been pervasive and persistent, and it's going to take the same pervasiveness and persistence of each of us to tackle these historic um, legacies of racism. You know, my background is in public health. We've been saying for years, for decades in public health that race is such a large indicator of poor health outcomes. And even in the enormous body of literature, when you read the confounding variables, whether we talk about income, insurance access, um, whether we talk about gender, um, where we live, income, whatever the confounding variable, race gaps still persist in health outcomes which means racism has to be addressed in order for us to reach health equity in the United States. Yes. And what makes this particularly challenging is that all of those variables are interconnected, right? So if you have low income, you're less likely to have high education or, or suitable housing you're more likely to live in a food desert environment. And conversely, 
If you have low education, you're likely to have low income. And so these things are so terribly interconnected, we get distracted mm -hmm. by addressing one element, but never fully addressing the other element, which I would contend is race. And so as Lloyd says, until we come together and acknowledge in truth and candor um, and transparency, quite frankly, and empathy and compassion, we are not gonna get much further, my personal opinion. I am trying to remain hopeful, um, but I'm tired. And I know many of my colleagues are tired because often we're at the forefront of leading those conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Pam, for that. Micheline? Yes. Um, I want to almost say uh, yes and amen to everything said so far by Pam and, and Lloyd. I, I, I will tell you that as we find ourselves at this incredibly interesting juncture in time, you know, people have said, why is, is now different? Um, mm. And as I look back upon the civil rights movement and certainly other struggles, right, there have been other marches before, but I don't think that we've ever seen the incredible diversity that we are seeing right now, that we've ever seen marches like this and attention that has been really um, provided across the globe in Barcelona and Berlin. There's a reason for that. Who would have thought on January 1st of 2020 that we would have been at this stage both dealing with a global pandemic and an international revolution, right? So as we look at where we are right now, it is high time for this much needed discussion. It is really that which in healthcare, oftentimes we do in fact say, well, race is an indicator. And sometimes I stop us and say, actually it is racism, right? But mm -hmm. that the weathering of the right. experience of being blessed with this melanin, but in and being in this country and others under systems and structures that are not designed for our well-being, that that actually weathers us, right? So there's been a lot of focus um, in our industry around the social determinants of health. But that conversation, that focus, has only been part of the discussion. If, in fact, we do not talk about the structural discrimination that is a pro product of a wide range of laws, policies, and social norms, many of which are deeply rooted in historical practices and processes and systems, even within healthcare today, we will still only attempt to effectuate a cure for half of even a symptom rather than the entire disease. Absolutely. Thank you, Micheline, for that. And Jean? Yeah, picking up on the the, uh, the idea Micheline just said about a disease. I mean, you know, we talk about the contagion that is COVID-19. Uh, we need to be talking about the contagion that is, that is racism, right? And that right. infiltrates all of our institutions and have for, for, for decades and decades and decades. And I think what you're seeing throughout the country is that this tension has existed just below the surface in just about every community. Um, when you think, it, when I think about Minneapolis, you know, I think of it as a fairly progressive city, um, home of one of my favorite artists, Prince, right? And, and, and I think about it from that perspective. When you think of Atlanta, you think about it progressive, but if it, ha it can happen in those communities, it can happen really anywhere in, in the country. And I think um, you got to go back to some root causes. Uh, the Washington Post did a wonderful article, if you haven't seen it, a couple of days ago, that basically said that there's been, and let me say this very clearly, there's been no progress in uh, income and wealth inequalities between now, 1968, or going yes. before that, right? So no, no progress through my lifetime, exactly. no progress. Um, if you look at, um, if you combine um, you have to combine 11 and a half African-American households to equal the net worth of one white U.S. household, okay? 11 and a half to one. And then even if um, you have a typical African, uh, a, a household that's African-American headed by somebody with advanced degree, 
right? Somebody with advanced, mm -hmm. they have less wealth than a white household that only has a high school diploma. So think about that. So there hasn't yeah. been any change. And that's really, we know the health care statistic. This crowd knows the health care statistics. I mean, African-American infant mortality rate is twice as much as the rate for, for the majority population. African-Americans experience hunger at twice the rate of white Americans. Blacks are incarcerated five times as much. So I think what the time that we're in right now is that this, this American dream continues to be far, far out of reach for the majority of African-Americans on the whole. The promise of the civil rights era that I grew up with and my father would you know, uh, tell me about and, and we talked about as kids um, is not really being realized right now for the majority of African-Americans. And I think that George Floyd's public death and murder um, was a tipping point, has been a tipping point. I don't think we can go back. Um, it's laid everything raw and bare, um, and uh, it's a multifactorial healthcare, education, mental status, everything that that my colleagues have have highlighted. But I do think we are at a fundamental crossroad in our country. It feels that serious, um, and it's a go left, go right moment. Um, we can either live the better angels of our nature, as Lincoln said, or we're divided, we will fall. And I do think we're at that moment because you take the, the, the pandemic, the social unrest and the economic distress all combined. Um, we have to figure out how to, to work our way out of this as a country. Um, and I think there was mention of the protests that, that are happening internationally in Barcelona right. uh, in Spain, because yeah. um, they're looking to us as right. models of how to do this right. And I don't want to fail them. I don't want to fail us. I don't want to fail the world. Thank you, Gene. Scott? Yes. Gene, Micheline, Pam, and Lloyd, thank you very much. Gene, let me start with you. We start with a massive problem in our country in terms of how African Americans are treated in, in all different ethnic groups in our country, all different races, face some level of racism, but nowhere near the amount that African-Americans have felt or endured in our nation. Gene, I'll start with you. How do you start to improve this or bridge the gap? When I have conversations with my African-American colleagues, I talk to them about something like you just said about how they talk with their parents and their parents who saw so much progress in a very difficult America are now seeing so much of that progress sort of fall back and have not seen a lot of progress in the last 30, 40 years after such progress a long time ago. And you look at the stats, and they're very damning. They're very challenging. Gene, how do you look at this to, to someone who would be a parent of yours who's distressed about, oh, my God, how have we not done better in our country? And think about how do you start to bridge this gap going forward? How does this get better? How do you bridge this gap? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple things that come to mind. One is that I think we've been reticent sometimes in this country to have the conversation about race. It's uncomfortable. Uh, some folks don't want to say talk about it because they might say the wrong things they think. And I do think it starts with that courageous conversation. Um, if you're in the field, if you're in any organization, if you're a leader, have that have, throw the scripts away. <laughs> Listen to your teammates uh, and your colleagues of, of color. Ask them uh, how they're doing, uh, what 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 barriers they're seeing, how they're feeling about the state of things. I, that's what I invited all my seventy thousand teammates to do. Is is I invited them to have that conversation. And, and quite frankly, I was um, speaking uh, with Patrice um, uh, Harris, who's the, who's the, was a former chair of the uh, AMA, and I loved what she said, is, is also we have to, the people uh, that you're seeing have to not self-edit as much as well. So I'm finding myself having more of a courageous conversation. Last Friday, I spoke to 50 um, black men uh, that, that, is, that are on the organization because they're really hurting and they needed an outlet. And I started 
telling about my own experience. I haven't shared that before internally. Uh, the time where I was pulled over um, and uh, when I was in my 20s and, and, and searched with dogs, or the time where I was denied my first CEO job, uh, it's clear that I was denied because of, of, of how I look. And so, so I think, I think those are, I, I think it does start with having the conversation too much. Too many of us have been polite around it or, or, or scared to have it. I think that's one. The, the, the other thing I would share with my colleagues um, is that most of us in, in, and certainly on this, on this panel, but all my colleagues are sitting on other boards. And I think that the idea is don't just use those positions of influence within our own organizations. I think we have an opportunity to, to, to use that and leverage that more broadly and, and have the right conversations. I sit on the board of Best Buy. We had a board meeting last week. We we're talking about teen tech centers and minority communities and what are we going to do about that. Um, I sit on uh, incoming chair of the Richmond uh, Fed Reserve. We're talking about structural inequities. So, so I think um, I think it starts with having the conversation. Now, as Lloyd said, it, you have to have the conversation, but then the conversation has to lead to something, has to lead to real action. I think we're at that moment where we have to really be very specific about what those actions uh, need to be in all of our institutions and what are we going to hold ourselves accountable uh, for as, as Americans. Ms. Wayne, similar question. You spend all of your time literally focusing on these issues of health equity and, and diversity and how do we improve things. What can be done to help bridge the gap? So, so much um, actually uh, can be done. And the reason why I say it in that manner, Scott, is because um, oftentimes individuals take a look at this and say, well, what in the world can you do about racism? It's like, what in the world can you do about poverty? Well, well there's actually a great deal that can be done. And I think that um, my colleague, Jean, just, just walked us through, right, what that looks like. But it, it, it will not happen um, uh, if, in fact, we do not uh, decide to take it on, right? And so it's going to require uh, courageous conversations. You are correct. I am in a lot of settings where that is exactly what I do, whether it's uh, policy and governmental uh, affairs hat, since that's my background, um, uh, or whether or not uh, it's in a discussion um, uh, on uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or, or anywhere else. We are still having discussions about about equity but now we've got to be able to mature the discussion around actually racism right and what it looks like when you have a organizational culture that permits racism to exist how it shows up within those organizations and how it manifests right so one of the things that that I, I like to make certain that I refer to individuals is that they take a look at the fact that there are actually um, uh, guidelines on on what um, uh, white supremacist organizational culture is, uh, how it shows up there, and then, quite frankly, utilizing a racial equity assessment tool in order to evaluate every single administrative, operational, and clinical decision you make, right? So that sounds like like a lot. Yes, in fact, it is. But it, it is required in order mm -hmm. to literally go about the business of trying to create an environment of anti-racism, right? It has been here for a long time. It has been so, uh, it has been here for so long that quite frankly, as individuals are now protesting against it, people think that they're protesting against America because it's literally an aspect of the very fabric of the foundation. So we, we need to make certain that folks understand that it is okay not to know quite what to do, but to say nothing and to do nothing, that is unacceptable. So we really have to begin reevaluating our policies, our practices, our decision-making process. Who, who has power in the organization, right? Whether or not as we render policies, are we doing it all through a lens of, of, of privilege, right? Or are we actually encouraging others who have had a lived experience that is different from everyone else who, who tends to traditionally have positions and, and suites like ours? Um, are we, in fact, inviting them to be a part of that? And then, quite frankly, how are we driving this conversation down and throughout these organizations? 
patients. Uh, I think Jane just referenced, and, and I know that my, my, my other colleagues have also done a great deal. Everyone, right, has, has, they've issued statements, but this is not a one-statement issue, right? So mm-hmm. are we, in fact, creating um, uh, uh, opportunities for safe space discussions, courageous discussions across our virtual platforms, and so many actually are? Are we, in fact, equipping our organizational leaders with the talking points that they need in order to, to make certain that, that you can say, listen, I, I am uncertain, I have not walked in your shoes, but I want you to know that you are valued and worthy, and I see you, and I want to learn how to do better. Have we made certain that there are actually teeth in any of our discussions and decisions around what will and will not be acceptable in an organization? Have we literally ensured that individuals understand that that is unacceptable here? And so we're going to make certain that we do not permit um, the water cooler talk or, quite frankly, the, the, the institutional, systemic, and structural that has always been to remain because of the fact that we're going to be committed to an anti-racist agenda. So there's a lot. Thank you. No, thank you very much. Um, and it is a systematic issue that goes back really forever in our nation. There's no no way around that discussion and, and things that have been mentioned. I can't talk to an African-American executive or professional who's not had the experience that Gene has had, where he's been pulled over and treated far differently than a Caucasian-American would be treated by the police and, 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 and the same thing in boardrooms and other places. So I appreciate the sharing so candidly. Pam, let me ask you this question. This is sort of bridging the gap. Jean, Micheline, you, Lloyd, have talked about systematic differences in economics. Uh, Jean made the point it's about 11 African-American families to equal the net worth on average of one Caucasian family. How do you start to deal with bridging these gaps and addressing systematic problems that are so significant? How do you, how do you start to bridge those gaps? Yeah, I, I think it can quickly get overwhelming, right? We start getting distressed about how deep the challenges are. Um, but I think Michelina addressed, mentioned a lot of them. And as we think about economic parity, um, part of the reason COVID was such a problem in communities of color was because we were in the essential worker positions, right? Um, where we had to be present. Um, but are we evaluating the pay scales of our essential workers? Um, or are others getting extraordinarily wealthy off the backs of those individuals who are now deemed essential? And are we providing a living wage um, that allows them to afford housing and healthcare and other necessities? I think we have to reckon these really tough questions for ourselves um, in the American society. And it's a difficult one, right? Because we're rooted in meritocracy. Um, We believe in kind of pick yourself up by the bootstraps. where everybody's not necessarily giving equal opportunity for education. Um, I think we have to start thinking through the lens of equity beyond just words, but really think about equity instead of equality. And what does that mean? How do we put people on a more level playing field very early in life? Um, I love the focus on children, and there's quite a bit of literature now that says we really need to um, think about childhood, childhood trauma. What are all the children who have experienced um, the visualization of George Floyd's death experiencing in terms of trauma? And what do we now do with that um, to provoke change? and to promote education in a different way so that children are having courageous conversations. Um, What do we, I'm an affirmative action baby, right? I was given opportunities. My test scores probably didn't match my peers, but I was allowed, I was chosen for admission into some very important prestigious schools. I would have never have attended those schools. I didn't even know they existed when I was in high school. And we have to be comfortable with creating environments of equity that give opportunity to people who have historically not had opportunities. Um, There's been so much backlash um, against that. And I think we're going to have to reposition those conversations. Um, We have created a national government that has pitted people against one another intentionally. 
And those issues come to pass when we intentionally bifurcate people um, and promote discrimination among different groups for whatever reason, we then aren't compassionate and don't act out of empathy to position people for promotion and development over time. Um, and that requires resources. It requires um, redistribution of, of resources. I think we hear a lot about defunding the police. I'm not, I don't know exactly what my position is on that, but what I do know is we have to find funds to support programs and structures um, that, you know, the pool is not unlimited. And we've got to figure out how to re reallocate resources to support those things that are going to be long-term improvements um, to the economic well-being. Pam, let me ask you two follow-up questions. And, and I, 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 I love your thoughts on, do we much more fully need to embrace rather than fight affirmative action as a pathway for equity? That would be one question. The second question I have for you is one around nationalized health care. Do we at some point need a nationalized health care system just for the pure, just the level set, at least so everybody has some minimum level of health benefits? And, and again, just your quick thoughts on those two issues. Yeah. Uh, and I think those two issues go hand in hand, actually, education and health care in some realms as public services. I personally, again, this is Pam Sutton Wallace's opinion. It's not an institutional position. I do believe there needs to be some form of universal health coverage or, um, provided to all or some level of mandated benefit coverage by employers. Now, I understand the complexities of how do you pay for that. Um, those are the kind of redistribution, reallocation conversations of our different pools of resources. I also believe those resources should be used to support the providers of care. Um, those resources shouldn't be used for those who are not delivering care. Um, again, tough conversations. What does that look like? I believe, you know, reinstating some of the elements of the ACA. The ACA was working until we eliminated some key portions of it um, and then, in essence, created um, financial disincentive to participate in, in those programs. Um, in terms of education and um, whether you call it affirmative action um, or not, I do think, um, and we're starting to see many schools have eliminated, for example, the SAT, ACT, because they, in fact, don't prove to be highly correlated with academic achievement and success. They're highly correlated with a, uh, with a student's background. Um, and so I think we need to be more mindful um, of what is needed to predict success. And then what do we do to support that? And how do we offer that through the course of one's educational pathway to ensure um, that students, whether they're secondary or um, college, to support their growth and development to, to afford opportunities for um, professional advancement in the future. And let me say, I think that extends beyond just formal education, it plays itself out in professional development within our institutions. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about pipeline programs, yes, they take a long time, but the investments up front have proven successful that when you invest in junior, early careers, mid-careers, they develop into successful executives. Same is true with physicians. When you invest in uh, people of color, black students, invest in their secondary college education. They are well prepared for medical school, for residency, on through fellowship and becoming attending level um, physicians and providers. And, and Lloyd, I'm gonna ask you a similar question. Pam, thank you very much. Just very helpful and thoughtful, thank you. Lloyd, you famously talk about growing up where healthcare in the family was, if you had a bad tooth, it was your father pulling the tooth out. Um, it was it was really what what sort of what Pam talks about this building your up by the bootstraps uh, 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 American experience of really coming from nothing into great success. You've been on the McDonald's board. You run a thirty billion dollar plus system. You, you're really the example of the American dream. How do we bridge this gap so everybody has a chance at the American dream, and it doesn't create it doesn't require such Herculean efforts to get through the systematic racism. How do we bridge this gap further? 
Uh, uh, thank you again, uh, Scott. First of all, uh, I would say that uh, a question that I think is on everybody's mind and the questions that friends or folks